Hello, Spacers. I'm Christopher Schmidt, and today we are talking about SVG, Scalable Vector Graphics, with Sarah Drasner. Sarah works for Trulia, and she's also a staff writer on CSS Tricks, run by Chris Coyer. Uh, she also won Best Presentation at CSS DevConf aboard the Queen Mary last year. Some notes, uh, I'll be hosting a virtual conference about SVGs called SVG Summit on January 21st. Uh, we'll be covering the basics of SVG to advanced workflows with Chris Coyer uh, in a full day of just SVG goodness. Uh, check out more and re register at svgsummit.com. Also, there's going to be a JavaScript summit uh, from February 23rd through the 25th. It's uh, three days of virtual awesomeness. Uh, there, there's early bird tickets available until February 1st, so grab your spot now. Also, um, CSS DevConf will be announced pretty soon. Uh, the location, also the ability to get really great great prices for the con uh, for the conference with the earliest bird tickets uh, going on sale probably late next week uh, as as I, as I say this. So definitely uh, follow uh, CSS DevConf is uh, at CSS DevConf on Twitter. Also subscribe to get uh, links to to tickets at newsletter.cssdevconf.com. As always, thank you for liking and subscribing to Non-Breaking Space Show on iTunes. Uh, find show notes and links about today's episode at nonbreakingspace.com. Now on with the show. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Uh, it's Friday, so that's pretty good. Nice. Yes. Oh, yeah. Cool. Uh, well, welcome to, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Oh, yeah. It's my pleasure. I'm really excited to be here. Cool. Uh, well, just I guess to just get the, the beginner stuff out of the way, just we ask this question to, to everyone, uh, and that's uh, how did you get involved in the web, or how did you find the web, or how did you get interested in, in building on the web? Oh, well, um, so I started in... 2000, 1999 or 2000, one of those. Um, so I've been doing it for a while. Um, I was actually a scientific illustrator at the Field Museum of Natural History in Chicago. So I was drawing dead snakes and lizards for a living. And um, as you know, the camera kind of took over. <laughs> and they started doing these like, you know, um, camera profiling that was like even sharper than a human eye can make kind of stuff so my job there became less and less important and they asked me if I could they, they wanted to keep me on I had a good relationship with all of them and they asked me if I could build websites and at the time you could pick up a book on html for mm -hmm. dummies or whatever yeah. <laughs> and just kind of like learn html in a weekend there wasn't even css yet um and javascript was like cr crazy inline stuff and so I did. I just picked up a book and taught myself how to code. And then the webmaster, because we had webmasters at the time, knew she called my bluff. And <laughs> <laughs> um, so she took me under her wing because I think maybe I reminded her of herself. And she taught me like best practices. And at the time, it was all about how to 
bring things over from Photoshop to image ready to slicing to building it in tables and how to fix the table when it breaks and that kind of stuff. So she taught me that she started teaching me JavaScript and um, it's been pretty easy in that regard because it's been so long that I'd have to just incrementally grow. Whereas newer developers have, I feel bad for them. They have to like learn everything from the ground. <laughs> up. Um, maybe they get to skip some stuff that I had to learn though. <laughs> that is like defunct now. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, that's a, like, uh, when I started out, uh, dinosaurs rocked the earth. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and so there's all this like table based layout that people do not have to worry about anymore whatsoever. So, so yeah, but, the table-based layouts were kind of great because they were pretty, we didn't have to check on that many browsers and devices at the time. And right. so it was one thing, but they did, when they broke, it was kind of hairy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah when it broke, they broke pretty hard. Yeah. <laughs> so, and then you had to track down which table, table cell messed up. And that was always a fun, fun thing. Track yeah, that down. You had to change like a font. That was a nightmare. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. Oh, man. So you were in Chicago for a while. You were still there for uh, becoming a web guru, I don't know, webmaster, whatnot. So, um, so do, I mean, you're still not in Chicago, are you? I don't know. No, no, I'm in San Francisco now. So I, uh, I guess the timeline would be that I worked in Chicago for the next three or four years. And then I came back to San Francisco for grad school. And while I was going to grad school, I put myself through grad school by building websites. So I made some for Stanford and some for UCSF and some for um, just a kind of, I was kind of already in the scientific medical realm. <laughs> so I kind of did sites for those types of places. Um, and then um, after grad school, I became an, a college professor for nice. four years. And um so I lived in the Greek islands as a study abroad professor for four years. And during that time, I did not make websites. I think I made one website for myself, and but it was not anything really. And when I got back, that's when I kind of put the pedal to the metal and started doing a ton of stuff and worked at a design development firm and slowly became a lead and became a manager from there at Basho Technologies and... Um, and I'm now at Trulia, um, which is part of Zillow Group, and I love my job here. So. Well, I do want to back up just a little bit, and so and say, what did you uh, what did you go to grad school for? I went to grad school for painting. Oh wow! So um, yeah, what's, I have, what type I have, of painting? What's that? What what type of painting? Um, I did um, giant allegorical paintings that were kind of like. Um, looked like old Renaissance paintings, but had kind of contemporary cultural references. I did a lot of printmaking also, so I did a lot of etchings. Um, those are kind of a little bit like the scientific illustrations I had done before. I am pretty into rendering. So I taught a lot of, when I was a teacher, I taught a lot of people how to draw um, what they saw, because I think that that's a good tool to have in your tool belt, because then you can kind of use it or abuse it or not use it at all it, but it's nice to know it right, <laughs> right. um so yeah I, I tend to my own work when I work on just like on paper and not on the web tends to be one part 
fully rendered drawing in one part abstract. Oh yeah, that's awesome. So she went to grad school, uh, made websites to fund the painting and stuff. And then you went to the Greek island. Is that right? Is that day? Yeah, right? I, I became oh, yeah. a professor in the Greek island. So I taught, I did teach some like, you know, digital techniques and things like that. Um, I was mostly a painting teacher, an art theory teacher, and I taught some like anti, um, you know, uh, classical antiquity courses because that's where we were. So I would take the students from island to island and into Turkey and teach them about the historical sites there and wow. the art that was around that area and then like what that did for art these days. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. How was so? How was that experience? That was it seems like. That Awesome. <laughs> um, yeah, I was actually supposed to go for three months and stayed there for four years. <laughs> yeah, I don't blame you. That sounds pretty nice. So what would be like a typical thing that you do? Like, like, like you just go, I, I'm trying to just put my brain around how awesome that, that is. <laughs> but like, so you just go see these antiquities and good museums there and just just have a great time. I guess I don't know. Just, yeah. Like, so basically I would teach them during the week and then during the weekends, I would take them from minor Island to minor Island. We were in the Kakladis, which is where a lot of like the really epic mythology comes from. Um, so it was really like the, the best part I think for me was teaching them ancient myth- mythology and then being like, this is where <laughs> Athena had a duel with, you know, <laughs> I mean, that oh, was great or just yeah. like you know i think ancient greece has such a, like an interesting history um and then i take them into turkey and ephesus was an extension of greece way back in the day um so just going around those sites and then also talking about what the impacts were for like nowadays like there's a site in um ephesus that shows an old like Medusa that actually looks like the Starbucks logo. And, you know, there's all sorts of stuff like that all over the place that you can kind of draw a one-to-one connection between stuff that we keep borrowing from antiquity. So. Right. Right. So, and how'd you, how'd you end up in Greek islands after, um, after you graduated? It's actually kind of a funny story. I uh, was trying to, I always really wanted to go to Greece because I was very interested in origins and how everything started. I'm personally really interested in categorical theory. So I was in, interested in the Enlightenment, and a lot of the Enlightenment is borrowed from ancient Greece. And so I wanted to go there on a Fulbright scholarship. And at the time, I was working two jobs and going to grad school and building websites. And applying for a Fulbright is almost like a full-time job. So I was I stopped doing that kind of, and I was kind of upset about it. And one of my friends came into the lounge and said, wow, Sarah, I've never seen you look sad before. What's going on? And I was like, well, I really wanted to go to Greece. And so I was doing this Fulbright. I can't go. He said, well, that's not the only way to go to Greece. And it turns out that he used to be a professor in the Greek islands at the school. So he hooked me up with talking to that guy. I think at the time I looked really young. I'm very small. I'm very short and I looked very young at the time. So the teacher, the, you know, the head of the school was kind of like, you have to show them your work before you start teaching them so that they know that you're the teacher. <laughs> okay. So I, I met you, I think for the first time at uh, CSS DevConf. Yep. Right? And uh, you, thankfully, yeah, like you submitted your talk to CSS DevConf <laughs> and then it was picked, you know, it was, we had a lot of entries and, uh, you're picked and um 
and your topic was SVG. So how did you, was it natural fit for you to be interested in SVG? Because like when you started out in web design, like 2000, SVG was like an Adobe plugin you know, <laughs> in, order, in order to be used. So, so only recently it's been kind of native support. So how did you get involved into um, I'm trying to remember how I started working with SVG. Actually, like, I think the common thread through my whole life, maybe, um, is that I tend to be interested in a balance of art and tech. Um, I tend to, like, be really, like, even when I was doing scientific illustration, scientific, scientific illustration as, like, nerdy and scientific as you get into rendering. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think the when I first heard about SVG, I think I didn't even start working with it for many, many years afterwards. I think there was a turning point when Dimitri, I forget his last name, um, the creator of Raphael and Snap SVG gave a talk called You Don't Know SVG. And that was kind of a game changer for me. I think just knowing actually at that point that you could use the DOM, like that, that it had a DOM, um, because the scary part for me was that this thing was sounded really awesome and it was made out of math. That graphics made out of math to me already had me kind of sold. But the fact that it had a navigable DOM that I could reach into and do things with was, and I, you know, I think he showed a few demos by CJ Gammon that were just beautiful. They're just amazing. Um, that that was what sold me really like those snap SVG d demos. And I was, I was a goner. <laughs> um, and I think CJ Gammon and snap SVG had a big part of that. Yeah. I remember we had someone talk about it at the JavaScript summit that we did a couple years ago, but I haven't really played around with it. So, um, and so, so you got, you got interested in seeing snap SVG and then you started just playing around with it or. Actually, I didn't, I don't think I actually used snap SVG that much. Um, I, I played around with their demos a little bit, but I was kind of interested in how CSS worked with it. I, I actually first started showing people how to not use SVG in order to use icon fonts and stacking icon fonts, but that was when the support for SVG wasn't as good as it is now. So it was kind of like, if you wanted to do this, but I mean, um, it was very complicated to do so. Like I remember having to like, go through Fontographer 5 and then stack them. And um, the positioning was kind of hectic and um, it always felt a little bit hacky to me. Um, so this was really much better. Um, and as soon as I started working with SVG, I was like, this is amazing because you can really just export what your artwork looks like and then start to manipulate it. And um that was very exciting. I started working with it with CSS first, and I tried a few different JavaScript libraries, sometimes all at the same time, um, which had strange effects on mobile. <laughs> um, but uh, I think desktop handled me using multiple libraries at once much more gracefully than mobile did. Um, but as I got more and more interested in bringing, I'd always been interested in responsive since it first came out. So um, SVG lent itself so well to all of the viewports and all of the resolutions and all of the scaling that I needed to do that I started to get really involved in like how to really take the what I think are the strong points of SVG and push them to capacity 
in terms of responsive design and development. I think, you know, most people think of like animation as being a little bit complicated, responsive as being a little bit complicated. You put those two together and you think like, oh God, no. Um, (laughs) And actually it's a lot easier and a lot more intuitive than one would think. And so I, I spend a lot of time trying to like educate people about how great that is in and of itself and like how much fun it is to um, just making these graphics that can scale. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, with SVG, like it's the, you know, it's a, it's a vector format and you can stretch it and, um, and scale it. So, but your talk was like um, not just doing animations with SVG, which is like, you, you probably just do it with basic SCSS rules. Is that right? You just do it with CSS rules, but then you also can do like, with um, what other like there's um, Greensock is that is that the library you would use yeah. or man? Yeah, so I um I think I started off working with Velocity, um, and then I was working with CSS a lot. I mean, I've always worked with CSS a lot. I gave a talk about CSS animations long before I even worked with um, SVG, um, and yeah, I think uh, I started working with Greensock. I think my my year anniversary of working with Greensock was Halloween. Um, <laughs> so I, uh, I started gently working with it and I worked with it for a, like on a couple of different things. And then um, Carl from Greensock reached out to me and was like, oh, you know, we're really interested in your work here. Do you have any questions? And I'm like, yes, I have 17,000 questions. For you. <laughs> so I, I, I apologize, Carl, if you're listening. Sorry. Um, <laughs> and, um, I started working with Greensock a lot when I understood that they had that timeline because it really solved a lot of the issues I had been feeling in both velocity and also CSS. Um, just staggering with delays and making master timelines. And they, it's just like very, very robust system that Snap didn't have, that Velocity didn't have. I did benchmarks to make sure that the performance was good and it ended up being as good as native, which I think you can't get better than that. <laughs> and um, so, because I, I did want to know for myself, I'd heard such conflicting things here and there. And I didn't really have a stake in the game. Like I, at that time I wasn't, I, I would say at, at this point, I'm kind of invested in GSAP in mm-hmm. Greensock, but at the time I could have gone anyway. Mm-hmm. I just really wanted to see which one was better. And the findings I thought like, well, CSS is great, of course, but um, Greensock offers so much more and mm-hmm. it, the performance is really good. So someone who's like listening right now, like why, why would they want to pick up Greensock? Oh, okay. There's a lot of reasons, but okay. So without sounding like a commercial, I always say this because it does bear saying they don't pay me. (laughs) I'm not on work for them. I'm not marketing. I'm just a developer who found a tool that they like. Um, uh, I, I really enjoy their timeline because if you're using, of, if you're using just a couple of CSS things, like if you're just using a couple of animation things, then CSS is great. If you are trying to make a long extended timeline in CSS, you constantly have to be giving a staggered delay for each one of them. And I've never made a long complicated animation where I haven't had to adjust the timing at some point. And that means in CSS that you're going back through 
all of your rules and rewriting all of those, um, the delay amounts. Um, even with SAS, it still isn't that great. And with this, the, like a very small amount of code, you can not only have things follow each other, you can have them come a little bit before and after each other. If you have something really complicated, you can have like multiple functions that are on a master timeline. You can have them all, you can put like a relative label and have a bunch of things start at once. Um, and no matter how, if other things move, they'll always come at the same time. Um, you can make everything go faster. So if I make 17,000, like sometimes my animations get pretty complicated. I'll have maybe 500 animation functions going on. If I get to the end of making all of those and go, you know, if this was just like a little bit faster, it would be better. I can do that in one line of code. When in CSS, I'd have to recalculate. I wouldn't even do it. I just wouldn't even. Do it. <laughs> just like not um, going there. I would say that nine nine times out of ten, what makes animation complicated is adjusting the timing. Right. Yeah, because you build it, and then also you have to. Oh, it would be really, and you tweak it, and then you build some more, and then come back and tweak it, and yeah, come back with fresh eyes. Like, oh, okay, this is. And, yeah, um, and those, okay. those little milliseconds actually, you do pick up on. As a human, you're like, oh, that was just like a teeny bit too slow and it looked kind of sloppy. <laughs> so, yeah, if you're a perfectionist at all, and I definitely am, it's a good tool. Okay, okay. cool. Awesome. And then, um, and so, um, I, and I, I don't want to like, uh, you know, so you're, you're going to be talking about SVG. I mean, you, you talked about it at CSS DevConf and talking around uh, CSS the SVG summit, so like that. Uh, is there any other, like, I don't want, we can talk, is there any other aspect of SVG that you like about besides animation or? Oh, yeah. I mean, on? I actually have been trying to move uh, Trulia more and more to using SVG for stuff like our brand marketing stuff because, um, because it's resolution independent, the graphics that we were cutting earlier, especially as we move more towards responsive, it becomes when you have something that is flowing with along with the unit structure of the page, um, if it's an SVG, it scales so gracefully and it looks beautiful. It also looks crisp on any display on my retina. It looks the same as it would on my, you know, uh, Mac on my monitor, which is not retina. And it looks beautiful and crisp, even if I'm scaling the text up way high or doing weird things with it. I never really, I, there's like, some stability stuff that like people are worried about the support for SVG. I actually worry about images without the support for SVG because yeah, sure. You might be able to render a JPEG, but SVG actually has amazing support if you write inline code. And also um, it, you don't have to worry about this image replacement hell that you can get into with like picture or source set, which I, I love picture and source set, especially for photos. But if you just have, something that is a pretty flat graphic right. and it really does well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think I, 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 guess it's, I think it's, uh, it's the, really the first, you know, true, uh, responsive web graphic format that we have. And so it's not like, uh, you know, we need picture or, or HTML five hack, not really hack, but work around. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. But, uh, but yeah. Yeah. Cause like, I would love to see uh, an image format that would just, that was actually like, responsive where we can actually have like one big JPEG or raster image and the browser can like slice it up and 
get the resolution that it needs, but for Raspberry. But, but yeah, yeah, I think Eric Meyer was kind of work, working on that with Amelia Bellamy Royds. Um, they were trying, what they were basically trying to do was, you know, how a bitmap was like basically maps every single coordinate full of mm -hmm. color or whatever. Um, they were doing that with an SVG, like with the SVG kind of coordinate system. Right. And it tends to get a little bit heavy, but the graphics, something like a photo can stretch and right. does actually look okay. It does still. Yeah. Cause I know Eric Meyer went to um, uh, convert bitmaps to SVG uh, to retain the bitmappy. I actually retain images because as we were scaling them, uh, we would lose, um, uh, they try to scale. I forget exactly what the reason was, but if we scale images with onto retina displays or whatnot, they would actually lose their uh, image integrity. So by bitmapping them into like sort of like square them off into SVGs, they actually retain kind of the pixel color format. So when they would scale, they would actually stretch. Yeah, I think. A, yeah. yeah, I think that was the whole idea behind it. Um, I haven't tried. I haven't like super tested it out you know like you if you're really going to give it the litmus test you should probably like do a smaller mm -hmm. image and see what happens when it scales every type of it seems like every type of image format has does a different weird thing when it scales up like right. you know jpegs we've all seen get lossy and kind of gross mm -hmm. and gifs have a different way of getting weird <laughs> and, um so, yeah, I, I mean, I'd be interested to play around with it more and see how it does. My understanding, though, is that the file size bumps up a bit. Yeah. Yeah. So um, is it possible to bring in a JPEG into an SVG, like through style sheets, like through background? That's okay. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of ways of doing that. Um, the more traditional way, that's not the Eric Meyer Amelia way through that GitHub yeah. repo, um, yeah. is that actually you can put a foreign object inside of an SVG and put a JPEG in there. Um, the way, the reason that you would think to do so is like, let's say there's a couple of different ways. One is like if you're using an SVG filter for something, SVG filters are pretty powerful. They're pretty CPU intensive, so I don't use them that often, but um, you can actually affect the JPEG pretty well that way. Um, another one is if you have like a JPEG, like let's say a hand-drawn or a photo inside of an SVG DOM, um, otherwise you just put the image on, right? Like you'd make the SVG and you make the image separately. But if you're actually going to like embed it inside the SVG, a good use case is if it has to go in between layers of SVG. There are ways of getting around that, like having an SVG on top and on bottom of it. Um, but you can also insert it into the SVG DOM. Um, yeah, those are those have been my two biggest use cases for putting an image in, especially like if you're making an animation or a graphic or any type of graphic that like has one part that needs to be a little bit more bitmappy, SVG is mostly good at those kind of flat graphics. Um, anytime you get more hand-drawn look and feel, you'd probably want to switch to a bitmap. Right. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Well, so that's kind of sad. The fact that you, that uh, see, 
the SVG filters are kind of CPU intensive that you can't because uh, that'd, be, that'd be kind of fun. But I guess if you were to do, do like I guess my other thing is like how do SVG filters uh, relate to like normal CSS filters? Um, I think uh, my understanding. Well, first of all, there are tons more you can do with them. Like in you SVG? can make, yeah, in SVG than in um, CSS. I do really like the CSS filters. They're super awesome. I think Uma, U, Una Kravitz has great demos about like what you can do with CSS filters. Um, and I think Dudley Story also has some really really awesome um, SV, uh, CSS filters. The SVG filters, you can completely change things, though. It's not just like blend and multiply and all of those kind of like Photoshop filters that you're used to, um, which are also really good and SVG also has. But with SVG, you can layer a bunch of different filters and get crazy effects. Like I did a couple of demos that made these clouds into like pop art clouds. You can make things look like scattered droplets from one image. You oh, can wow. make, uh, oh, there was a Smashing Magazine article not too long ago that showed them. You can have polka dots and stripes and like comic book looks and all sorts of like, it becomes pretty varied and pretty interesting. All of them, I would say with the pop art ones that I was doing, I made them, I made just like static images and then I made them animate. And for both of them, you have to wait a while before something shows up on the screen. And even when it does, for the animation stuff, it renders so poorly. It's just kind of heartbreaking because you're like, yeah. this is so cool. And it looks bad. <laughs> it took too long. I think, you know, in the future, you know, as we get more and more powerful computers and things kind of get pushed forward, I think SVG filters are going to become more and more important. Mm -hmm. But as it stands right now, they're not quite there. All right, cool. Yeah. And then, cool. And then um, that's cool. That's good. That's good. Good to know. So, all right. And then, um, and then your your topic that you gave at CZFConf uh, uh, was. Uh, complex animations, and so uh, we talked a little bit about GreenSock as a as a library. Is is that the kind of like the key to formula to doing complex animations? Um, yes and no. I would say yeah. that like if what's complex about it is the animation itself, then probably. Mm -hmm. um, I also um, you can do like really really complicated things with um, CSS animation by changing things with the SVG. So one of the demos that I show is how, like there's like three different ways that I show how to use with uh, SVG sprites. Mm. So I think I gave that for that CSS summit that you also did because you're very prolific um, <laughs> <laughs> with all of the environment for humans conferences. <laughs> um, uh, uh, there's like a couple of different ways where you can just like, have JavaScript shift the view box and actually render completely different things or even with CSS media queries, make things completely look different on different devices with not a ton of code. Like just a really small amount of code can make really amazing effects. Okay. Um, so that's more the power of SVG, I would say, and and the power of CSS and CSS media queries. All right, so I have a really basic question to ask you and I'm kind of embarrassed to ask you about this. <laughs> So 
once I export like an image out of the view box, I have like four coordinates, I believe they what they are mm-hmm. for values. And what do those values mean? Like what those because I, I always sure. feel like um so okay, the initial values are like zero zero coordinates. So if you think about like um mapping coordinate system or like think about the last time you played um battleship. Right. <laughs> and so those zero zero coordinates are really just like the, the top of, the of those um, X Y values, and usually you start with zero zero. There's not too many cases where you're going to get another type of value unless you're being very purposeful and cropping. Um, and then it'll extend to the area that you specify within the SVG DOM. So like. 450 and 450 would be like 450 along the X axis and 450 along the Y axis. That makes that basic square that you'll see the information. So the the interesting thing to note about SVGs is you can put tons of things inside of an SVG DOM and you're only really going to show people what's inside the view box. So there's the viewport in the view box, which is kind of confusing. The viewport being the like amount of space you have on the device or browser window that you're seeing the view box being the that definitive area um so you can actually crop svgs on the fly that's a lot of the magic that we do with svg sprites is simply moving that view box around so you're going from one view that exists it's like one big long svg if you think about Uh, like normal JPEG or PNG sprite, you're just basically moving the visible area around. Okay. Um, So, so I I guess my question is then if I have zero, zero, and then I have like, you know, uh, just see make a square, let's say like 50 by 50. So it's 50, 50. I guess that makes sense. 50, 50. Is it like pixels? No, it's not. Um, That's a great question. So, um, when you're working with the SVG DOM, you're basically like you set up this kind of DOM system and coordinates that works within itself. So you can make it scale to whatever pixels you want. Mm-hmm. Um, so if I said, let's say I set up a view box coordinate system and I just set up a normal SVG, you export it from Illustrator or something. Let's Before you even get to editing by hand, let's talk about like, you made an SVG in Illustrator and you exported it. It has a uh, view box attached to it, okay. and um, you put it inside of CodePen or something like that, and you see it's the same size as your Illustrator document. Then if you remove the width and the height from those values, and you can say in your CSS, SVG width equals 100%, it will just scale to the width of its container. Okay. It's still functioning within that coordinate structure so if you try to move like a rect you know 100 to the left it's still using those coordinate values it's just bigger right um it's not moving it 100 pixels it's moving it like 100 of those coordinate units which it's also measuring the confusing part is that it's also you can write pixels but it's if it's within the svg dom Mm -hmm. it's moving that rect within that system. So it, if it's big, it'll be much more than a hundred pixels. It'll be like three times. If it's three, if the whole SVG is three times that amount, uh-huh. then the, it'll also move it three times that amount. Right. It'll, it'll be a multiplier, right? Just like, yeah. Okay. So, um, 
I'll be kind of dumb. Sorry. Uh, yeah. So I just want to wrap my head around it, but just like, so if I have like 50, 50 pixels, I stretch it out with CSS, the coordinate system is going to stretch with it and shrink with it no matter what. And then how, where does it come to cropping it if I wanted to crop it on the fly? Um, I usually use JavaScript to crop it because okay. um, CSS d- thus far does not have a good way of cropping a view box. So I usually set attribute and crop it that way. I um, usually use like a match media for mm-hmm. that in JavaScript. So I'll just say like listen on the window for this event that makes it smaller or if it's um, loading at that size, make it mm-hmm. smaller. Okay. And then, um, and then it will just move the view box. Yeah. All right. But so, it's, but in essence, I just want to don't want to belabor this point anymore. But uh, just want to make sure. So, like the the view box coordinate system is just it's like this like magic unit system, right? Just this. Yeah. Like if you can think about it, like um, the way that I tried to explain it in the front end masters course was yeah. like. Imagine that everything inside of an SVG is a piece of graph paper. And when you're mapping it, that actually helps you explain how you map circles and rects and paths and what have you, because it's always mapping to that graph paper system. Then you Mm -hmm. can imagine that the graph paper gets smaller and bigger. Right. Right. Um, Then it's a little bit easier to kind of reason about that way. Okay. Okay, cool. Awesome. That that that's that's been a big question. I've been I've been a big idiot. I've like been wondering about that for a long time. So. No, I think actually, like you know, I'm the type of person who needs to like do the thing in order to get yeah. it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think other people are really smart and they can just read about it and then they know it. And I right. I'm not that way. I need right. to like actually get my hands on it. So I actually have a demo that shows this. Okay. Um, so for people who are listening in, there's a demo where you can actually like move the value like change the values and the whole animation moves along okay. with it so all right yeah if you send me a link i'll put it in the show notes okay great That'd be great cool awesome so um i don't believe it i mean i also don't want to like you know you're you've you're talked about svg or you're doing great things with the g is like is there anything else about the web that you like or oh that's, yeah that's, <laughs> so, so what else are you interested in um i think um you know lately i think all of us have heard the buzz about React. All yeah. of us are, you know, well aware of the fact that this is like the hot new thing. Um, I tried it out for about a week of just like I was, I had a week off work and was just constantly head down working with React. Um, I actually had a really great time working with it. I think there are good things about it and bad things about it. It's the same thing as any tool where mm-hmm. like you can abuse it and use it incorrectly. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't even say it's incorrectly, but it's what I deem as incorrectly, <laughs> which is not incorrectly. That's incorrectly in Sarah Drasner's head. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, I, I just refactored a giant CSS code base for Trulia. So in my head all the time is um, how it impacts changes and maintenance in the future. Um, that's something that I'm keenly aware of in a way that I never used to be. <laughs> um, and so I think in looking at the way that React worked, one of the biggest misconceptions that I think I saw was that you have to use inline styles with React. And that is not the case at all. Um, I was very happily working with 
um, really, you know, normal CSS values for all of this stuff. I even was working with JSX, which is really just is very similar to HTML markup. So um, you can obfuscate your code or make it abstract to the level that you feel comfortable with. A lot of people feel comfortable with abstracting it a lot. Um, I personally like it to be a little bit easier to maintain. I like the ability to change a line height that will propagate through an entire application. Mm -hmm. That's interesting to me. So I guess I'm really interested in React as a new technology. I'm also really interested in um, not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And so that is like something that I feel passionately about. I also, in terms of not throwing the baby out with the bathwater, would say that I've really enjoyed working with React and React State principles. I still like jQuery. <laughs> Everybody likes to hate on jQuery lately, and I still really like jQuery. Um, so, um, you know, I, I don't think that things are as much pe- people I've noticed with blog entries of late tend to be think of things in booleans and i think that the web is really large and there's tons of different use cases and uh, i feel very passionately that there's like lots of good answers and smart people for all different types of use cases um i think inline styles actually do have a good use case if you're making a data visualization that's a great use case for inline styles for using it on a code base like trulia's I don't think that's a good use case <laughs> for an inline style, um, but that's also because I just refactored it. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. um, I have my own views on that. So that's, I guess that's yeah. that's what I've been thinking about lately. Okay, cool. Uh, I just want to go back just one quick sec. Step back is like, what are the pros and cons of React from your um, from your perspective? Um, I, I would say that what I've noticed is that if you don't set things up pr- correctly and i admittedly like have had help like i'm wor- i'm working through this stuff using um west boss's react for beginners course which i can't uh recommend highly enough i think yeah, it's he- a really good course mm-hmm. um and have been reading a ton of articles all of these really help i'm reading react for beginners to that or react uh, js essentials um which is a really good book. And the state principles, if you are doing them correctly, you're keeping the most stateful objects higher in your um, hierarchy and the stateless lower. Mm -hmm. And I think if you don't do that well, you stand to make your code a little over-engineered and uh, get confused logic. Um, I also think that it's not to the hammer, everything's a nail kind of thing. Like it's not useful for everything. If there are times where using React for a smaller thing, if you don't have a bigger application is a little overboard and maybe reinventing the wheel, especially if you have to, you have to care about stuff like SVO, SEO where you have to render it originally and then render it again. If you're doing small, small amounts of changes it's not like jQuery in that way where you can use it for one small thing and it makes sense. I think it makes sense for a lot of state changes that jQuery admittedly has to do a lot of checks for. Um, That's, that's my initial impression. I'm not 
at all <laughs> an advanced React person. I'm yeah. a beginner still. I'm just right. really excited about it and uh-huh. I've only been using it a short amount of time. Yeah, okay. That's, we're going to actually bill you as the advanced expert. Okay. <laughs> <user> for, yeah. <laughs> Great. I will send everybody down the wrong path. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, just, you know, I really appreciate your, your point of view because I think it's, uh, you know, React has been, um, ever since uh, I've heard about React for a while and um, definitely it's been, ever since last year, it's just been something i um, been interested in and what people people's uh, opinion of it is. Yeah, so, how, what is your experience with React and, and uh, well, it's like um, I, well, my React, my I don't have any personal experience with it. Just in terms of uh, as as someone who actually go how I, who this is really boring, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> as someone who who wants to find uh, uh, topics that people want to hear and see more about in our industry as a conference organizer, uh, it's JavaScript is really weird in that. Uh, things come and go very easily, ebbs and waves. Uh, so there's lots, and I think you, you find it a lot about that in JavaScript, where you find um, uh, um, people build toys. I work, like toys. I do like I'm doing air quotes toys, uh-huh. but like almost like proof of concepts or things that they're giving back to the community. Um, and so, like, hey, I built this X Y Z and see how it works. And so sometimes it's awesome, like uh, Ben Allman uh, Grunt, right? So he built this tool to automate things, and it's great. And then there, all of a sudden, there was uh, there's broccoli, there's uh, you know, there's Gulp, right? And so Gulp is like great. It's actually more advanced in some ways than Grunt. Uh, it's faster, and Ben is really an awesome guy. He just like he doesn't care as long as the best tools out there. But you know, um, so and Gulp is good. You know, maybe in the future overtake grunt in terms of popularity and whatnot um and i'm so, constantly impressed by those type of people like dimitri the guy who wrote snap is much yeah. the same way i talked to yeah. him about um uh you know green sock and those kind of things he said it's not as good for animation i'm not going to try to like try to compete with them it's really yeah. good first another thing but right. he like people who are so good at what they do, and he's a genius. Um, <laughs> um, that they can see other people that are smart around them. I'm yeah. very impressed with people like that who yeah. seem yeah. to even devoid that things of their own ego. Yeah, and and yeah, it's it's awesome to see people. As, and I love that about our community and the fact that uh, uh, there's so many smart people. We're able to share uh, so many awesome things. Uh, in our industry, where like you go to another industry, I've probably said this a billion times on my on the show or to other people. It's just like you go to any other industry, they're not going to tell you anything. You know, NDA yeah. or you know, uh, you know, um, you know, you know, they just can't share like their best plumbing techniques with you. You know, if in the plumbing industry or something like that. I don't know. It's just uh, they're just not going to tell you. Like Boeing's not going to tell you how they build crafts. You know, aircrafts. You know, if you're in the aircraft industry, so it's just. Is what it yeah. is, but yeah, actually, I have a friend who works at Boeing, and sometimes he'll be like, he'll like send me an email that's like, "Hey, can you want to go out to dinner or whatever?" And we, I invited my girlfriend, and we're gonna go do this. And at the end of an email, it's like, "This is a confidential email. <laughs> Boeing yes. owns you." It's like seven paragraphs of like how much I'm liable for his like, you know, let's go watch Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> we can watch Star Wars, but let you know that anything I say <laughs> might be private conversations. Yeah. yeah. 
I, I actually, I think that that has a lot to do with why I moved more away from the art. I really love art, um, but why I moved a little bit more away from the art community and more towards uh, the web was because of, because of that stuff, you know, like um, artists will nowadays don't share techniques as freely. It's like, Oh, it's mine. (laughs) I think um, there is a certain pride on the web of like, Oh, I made this. It's for you too. Like, yeah. Like there's, you know, I taught this many people. Um, and I think my favorite adage from like a medium article <laughs> was if you really want to be a 10 X developer, help five other developers get two times better. Oh. <laughs> it's just like, yeah, that's, that's a great attitude. That's right. super awesome. Yeah. I, I actually went to, uh, uh, I went to design school. Design school is actually part of the art school. And so I was actually tucked in to there. And so, so I learned art arts classes uh, and as I was getting my design degree. And then I enjoyed the art classes a lot. And I, but I felt like to break in to art world, if you would, um, you know, I felt like the instructors really weren't willing to talk about the business side of getting your stuff into shows, uh, marking yourself and doing so. They would tell you how, like, how to build. Uh, pottery, the, the paint, but they wouldn't tell you how to like make a living off of your art. And so, um, and in some ways, that's maybe an answer to uh, why I'm not an artist. It's like, I'm, <laughs> so, is that, <laughs> like, I don't like, want to do this. <laughs> I don't know how to do this. But maybe that's why, like, if I, if I would just do it anyway, I would find a way, but no. Um, but uh, I yeah, think- I just feel like that, that's, I don't know. What do you say? Yeah, I mean, I actually, actually, there were a couple, I was lucky to go to two schools that didn't, I went to the Art Institute of Chicago and then San Francisco Art Institute. And both of them had courses for like art in the real world or like mm-hmm. uh, how to like careers in art and stuff. And they did warn us. It was actually like my most depressing class. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, Cause they did kind of warn us about like um, the things that they should have warned us about, like um, making contracts with people and mm-hmm. like how galleries will take a large percentage of things and some of will hold your work in the back room for a while without showing it, stuff like that. Um, but I think the big thing there is I, there was a point when I came out of undergraduate where I was making my living selling paintings, but I always was a little worried. Like I, I can't even do freelance for this reason. And maybe other, and I know other artists, that are friends of mine who do, and they're great at it. Um, I get too anxious. I, if I do freelance or if I sell my work, I always get this like, yeah, it's going well now. Maybe it's, I'm too Jewish or something. <laughs> it's going well now, but it's not going to go well in the future. Uh, it's all going to crumble later. What am I going to do? <laughs> kind uh, of um, stuff. And I think um, the problem with art in that way for me was that it only was freelance. You're not like an artist at a company Um, Mm -hmm. for the most part. Maybe some people are, I just have not heard of that aside from being a professor. I have not heard of that as a thing that often. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So it's, um, yeah, there's a good article. I I feared to get up, but uh, I read in terms of, an artist who was freelancing. And so his discussion was more like, 
I have an artist who does different styles, and so I'm not sure that's that's going out, but different styles. And so his idea was just his point of view was just put every style that you can you do online, and so that people who would come to visit your portfolio can like sort of pick and choose or like uh, know what what to expect from your from your artwork and some of that too. So yeah, I guess like the high art world would. Mm-hmm. kind of frowns on that i think yeah. part of the reason is marketability because they want to be able to someone wants to be able to have something on that's on their wall and someone yeah. else comes along and says oh that's a christopher schmidt yeah. and <laughs> um so i guess that makes sense in terms of if you think about it like branding maybe yeah. but that's a high art world thing okay. kind of. yeah it- well, then there's also like the art as uh, architecture, right? Like, mm-hmm. your, you know, your art as a home or or your, your thing. So, like, uh, my favorite show right now is Extreme Home Homes. It's on <laughs> Netflix. And so we have these weird people who who are you know, have architects. And I feel like I should go to architecture in some ways because they design the really weird, unique spaces. Uh, um, and they build really cool arts, art pieces that are unique to... You know, like uh, I forgot his name already. Uh, who did Falling Water? Oh, um, uh, um, Frank Lloyd Wright, right? Yes, so, Frank Lloyd Wright. Sorry. Yeah, Chicago guy, right? So, uh, but yeah, so he uh, a lot of Chicago pieces, but uh, yeah, so like he does a lot art for the environment, right? That where he found it, and and some people do. Uh, there's a house that was all about eggs. This lady just designed her whole house around around the shape of eggs, and so it's. It's pretty cool. I feel, I feel like that's pretty awesome, but you know yeah. you can't really yeah. So I feel like that's pretty pretty cool. Do art on a grand scale, like yeah. That. Art and um, architecture is a good way of marrying art and tech to some extent. It's like also a marriage of like math and science kind of stuff mm-hmm. too. There's a really good book called um, uh, The Architecture of Happiness by Alain de Pitton. Mm-hmm. Um, he also wrote The Art of Travel. Um, which is an amazing book. You should definitely read it. Um, and the architecture of happiness definitely talks. It like talks about um, this expectation of these spaces that are beautiful and what we have come to expect that our lives will be better by it being in them. And it has the, these personal stories or stories through art history about different spaces. So it's pretty interesting. Um, I, I've always been interested in architecture, but I never have thought about 3D very well. Like mm-hmm. I've just never been able to negotiate. I'm re- good at two-dimensional spaces and really bad at three. I'm clumsy and <laughs> I just can't, can't negotiate that third dimension terribly yeah. well. <laughs> There's two dimensions I got it hand- covered and like it will be spot on. But if it's yeah. three dimensions, um, it falls apart. And so I don't do yeah. a lot of architecture kind of stuff. Yeah, there's a book. Uh, yeah, there's a book called I think it's the Architecture of Wayfinding or the Art of Wayfinding, and oh, it talks yeah. about it talks about how like uh, we define our location and ourselves by the steps it takes to get around somewhere. And so, as an architecture, it's really we're not really building buildings in in that, in that sense. We're actually building uh, the experience of going through a space and right, what that right. means. And so, uh, and that's kind of like how I know about the book is mostly it's kind of geared back to use your experience of a website and web apps. Yeah. Thing, but, but yeah. I was just so. about to say that like some 
some websites definitely take you through a journey. I mean, anytime you step into a website, I think the user is a little bit tentative, right? They're like, mm-hmm. what am I going to experience? And that's kind of, I kind of think that that's like part of the reason why websites start to look alike because they want to give the user some path that they're used to and accustomed to before um, sending them. You know, there was a time back in the day that you probably remember when every single website had a completely different layout and there was not a hero image. There was not a, you know, okay, here's the three things that you need to care about. And then there's the, you know, like all, all websites. And I think Jen Simmons started talking about this a lot this week. Well, she's been talking about it a lot for a while, but it, uh, some of her talks got published this week um, about how the web is all starting to look the same. But that's mm-hmm. that's part of the reason why. I mean, it actually does make, you know, it's, I think it's an, a really interesting and awesome thing when you look at the award sites on the AWW awards and there are all these WebGL experiences. You go into a whole new land and it's beautiful and everything's awesome. Um, that's great. But if you are working for a company where you need to generate leads and your life depends on every, you know, percentage right. that it people don't click, you need to have that button on the right hand side that is an accent to color. You know, the, there's a reason why these patterns do evolve too. Right. I see both sides of it, which, mm-hmm. um, you know, not everybody can make a WebGL experience for what they're trying to make. I would love to do that for Trulia. It just wouldn't work, you know? Um, Yeah. Like, I feel like there's a a great experience for people who, uh, you know, I I love Wikipedia because I can just find information and I can, you know, and that's the experience, right? Like I just, I can lose myself an afternoon going down, finding information and learning about it. But there's also the, you know, the experience of, a WebGL like you know landscape or uh, just getting lost in that, and they're both correct, you know, in their own way, right? Mm-hmm. And I and you just respect them. There's like there's one is not better than the other. They're just which one's better for the context in which they find themselves. Yeah, and yeah. So that's. Uh, well, but I, mean, I will say the, the web is just oh sorry, no go for it. Yeah, what are you saying? I mean the the web is such a big place nowadays. There's just not one use case anymore. There's not like, a, I think we as a web development community have to be really comfortable with that gray area because it just isn't, it's not one way or the other. And best practices now don't necessarily, sometimes they definitely do apply. Okay. If you're going to make, you know, like a giant image that sinks the site, that's not a best practice solution. Um, but for things like a layout, there isn't one answer. And yeah. it does depend on what you're doing. Awesome. Well, that's been great. I'm going to check out, what is, what is Art of Travel about? Art of Travel? Well, I'm, I'm pretty passionate about traveling, actually. That's a big thing for me. Um, and it kind of talks about not just like quantity of travel. Like people are like, okay, I'm taking two weeks off. I'm going to go to this place. But um, making it a quality experience. I think one of my favorite chapters talks about the terrifying sublime um, and sublime being defined as something that is both beautiful and scary. So like coming out of your con, uh, your comfort zone a little bit when you're moving and traveling and that you're not, I mean, I I definitely think that there's something to be said for a vacation where you lay on the beach with a margarita. Don't get me wrong. (laughs) Um, I, I do think it's, 
important for as a human. It's the same thing as watching Netflix on the couch and just watching your favorite TV show versus watching um, a film that really challenges you every Mm. once in a while. It's helpful to really engage yourself in a type of travel that challenges you as a human and is a little bit outside of yourself and, you know, challenges the, the things you think you need was something that I always talk, talk to my students about when I was a professor was, you know, like as a, one of the things I thought I needed before going to Greece was that I needed to take my coffee to go and run to wherever I was going. And we lived on a small Island where all of the coffee shops were along the water. Mm-hmm. And all of these people would say to me like, Ella, Sarah, sit, look at the water, no coffee to go. Like it was crazy to them. Like, why would you take your coffee to go? You, you'll be late. So you'll be late. Okay. You know, and that's very much like the Greek mentality. You wouldn't find that in Switzerland. Um, (laughs) But like, uh, and you know, I did live there too. And it's a very different type of mentality. But like, um, I think it, every once in a while getting out outside of your cultural norms or traveling alone or traveling to a country where you're not, you can't access the things that make you feel really comfortable is good for your heart and soul and mind. That's awesome. Yeah. And I think that's a great way to end uh, our talk. This is great. Appreciate yeah. Thank, thank you, you so Christopher, much. for having me so on the show. Well, thank you so much for uh, spending time uh, with us today. How can people find you on the internet? Um, probably first and foremost is my code pen profile. I spend a lot of time making silly things and, um, that's probably a better expression of what I am and do than what I say. (laughs) So, um, yeah, check out the code pen profile. Um, there's also my Twitter. Uh, so code pen is S jazz. Um, Twitter is Sarah Edo. So Sarah underscore Edo. Um, and I tweet a fair amount about things I'm passionate about, like animation and uh, React and all of those kind of things. And then uh, last would be my website. <laughs> cool. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. And, thank uh, you for having me. All right. Our pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.